Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we are coming at you live from Depler Farm in Iceland, truly one of the most remarkable places I have ever been in my life. And our guest today is my friend Ian Havlick, who has been our guide this week at Depler Farm. Ian is a great guy. He is an AMGA certified guide, and he has guided in the United States and Iceland, Norway, France, and Bellacoola, British Columbia. And I'm sure there's a place or two where Ian has guided that I'm not even aware of. And in this conversation, I wanted to talk to Ian a bit more about the guide life. I actually had a conversation just over three years ago with Angela Haas, another AMGA certified guide, along these same lines. But I figured, given the world we've been living in for the last couple years, it was probably time to check in with another accomplished guide that I really admire. And so I ran back some of the same questions that I was asking Angela three years ago. And of course, I ended up asking some different questions to Ian as well. Bottom line, I think that anyone who is thinking of getting into the guide game ought to listen to this conversation. Ian has a whole lot of perspective and information to offer. But I also think that anyone who is thinking of hiring a guide or wondering how this all works, you should probably listen to this conversation too. We get into the nitty gritty, some real brass tack stuff about what it means to be a guide, to make a living as a guide and the like. And so let's go ahead and talk more about the life of a guide with Ian Havlick. Here we go. Well, Ian, really good to see you again in Iceland. Ironically, I see you, I think, almost as much in Iceland as I do in our little town that we actually live in. So I, that's weird. And yet I'm not mad about it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is, uh, it's cool kind of reuniting in this little corner of the world. Totally. Yeah, no. Happy to see you again and get to share some turns with you. Yeah. It's been a fun couple of days. Man, yesterday, it kind of, all the stars aligned, and we had that bluebird, low wind to no wind, um, super nice condition stuff, and today, things went a bit trickier <laughs> in terms of visibility, and we were doing some adventure skiing, but all all fun in its own way. Totally. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a good... Good glimpse into Iceland skiing, where <laughs> you wait it out, you have a lot of storm days, but when it pops blue, um, it's worth the wait, and we were definitely rewarded yesterday with some May powder turns, and today it got warm, <laughs> and we skied some sticky, icky snow, and <laughs> still had fun doing it, so all good. But we did also ski some of the finest grass in the world. <laughs> yes. I, I really liked this. You you were like, no, I'm serious. I actually think the grass skiing in Iceland, well, I'll let you take it from there, but you're, you're making strong cases. I told you, you really needed to contact the Iceland tourism board for this. Yeah. The, the grass skiing in Iceland, if you have to do it, it's a year round sport and it slides really well with skis so you know if you're patching snow together don't hesitate to just let them run over the grass <laughs> <laughs> we did yep. we, we did a little not much but we, we got a little just enough little grass skiing today well first of all we would have been hearing from you sooner because i was really hoping that you were going to be at our blister summit mm -hmm. but when i contacted you about that you were, where were you? Uh, I was guiding up in Bella Coola, British Columbia. 
Yeah. Yeah. And we, you were like, I might be able to get back in time for the panel session I wanted to have you on and didn't quite make it happen. So I'm glad we could kind of find a time to kind of circle back. But, you know, we are going to be talking in this particular conversation sort of a bit about the guiding life. And you've got, well, one, quite a lot of experience in that life. But I figured a good place for us to start then is just to talk about your background. And then once we go through some of that background, then we'll start asking the question about, so then given all of that, what put you on the track into being a professional guide? Yeah. So I grew up um, in Boulder, Colorado, which is kind of rare these days to actually be born there. Um, Just doing, you know, normal kid, active kid stuff, soccer, ice hockey, a little bit of skiing, mostly just with my family, my brother. Nothing's too serious up until around age 13 when my parents saw some other parents at the local ski swap in the fall and they said, oh, your boys should should try cross-country ski racing. And at the time I was a pretty serious hockey player and my parents came home because I didn't want to go to the ski swap that night. Uh, came home and said, oh, you know, what do you think about trying uh, Nordic skiing, cross-country skiing? And I was kind of into it because I thought it'd be a good cross-training opportunity for hockey to make me better and stronger there. Uh, But then one thing led to another. And in high school, I was playing three sports at one time. I was playing ice hockey still, soccer, and now this new cross-country skiing thing. And eventually I had to to pick a sport, rightfully so. So I picked the sport I felt like I had the most fun in, was the best at maybe. And so I picked cross-country skiing. And I think that decision right there is what set me down this more outdoor path. Hmm. Um, little did I know then. But so I kind of took up cross-country ski racing pretty seriously. It took me all over the world really. Um, and I skied... Up through college, I skied for a D1 uh, University of Utah ski team. So we competed in NCAAs, and I wasn't the best cross country skier on the team, uh, but I was good enough to hold a spot and be the captain of that team for hmm. two years. And and so during that time, I st- I. I had a ski coach growing up that uh, was going down the mountain guide track. Jeff Banks, uh-huh. um, who's a local Crestibution. <laughs> and it's just so ironic now to be working side by side with Jeff. But Jeff, I got to say, was the guy who I remember being on a ski trip, a summer ski trip in New Zealand um, for summer on snow training. And I saw these DinaFit bindings because he brought his touring kit there. And I said, what are those bindings? And he told me, and I had never seen him before in my life. And yet he was going down the examination path for mountain guiding then. And so that was probably the seed that got planted because I really respected Jeff. I thought I was a cool guy. He's a cool coach, blah, blah, blah. And so I thought, oh, maybe I, maybe I check out this mountain guiding thing, not knowing a thing about it. Uh, so then <clears throat> through through college, I was rubbing shoulders with some of the avalanche forecasters mm. in Utah, in Salt Lake, some of the best forecasters, I think, mm. in the country, if not maybe the world, but definitely the country. And they were super eager to have this fit, young, strong kid tagging along, asking good questions. And from there, I felt like I really wanted to be an avalanche forecaster. Mm -hmm. And there are two routes to be a forecaster. And one is the book smart route where you get your master's in snow, maybe in Bozeman or something. Or you take the practitioner approach, which is ski patrol, guiding, something along those lines. So... I thought, oh, well, I don't want to be in school anymore, so <laughs> I'm going to choose the practitioner route, and I, I'm going to be this guide. 
And the best thing I knew how to do at the time was fly fishing guiding. So that's how I got into guiding was fly fishing guiding up in uh, Sun Valley, Ketchum, Idaho. And so every summer during college, I would fishing guide and then train for skiing also, which is really random. And it wasn't until, oh, I don't know, after college, pretty much, uh, I graduated in 2011. And so 2012, I got this ski guide internship or ski apprentice job at Telluride Helitracks. Huh. Which was a totally lucky thing, and I did not realize how fortunate I was at the time. But I did, but I didn't even still in retrospect. And I jumped on the team with the Telluride Helitrax crew, which are a bunch of really professional seasoned veterans where the turnover is really minimal as far as job opportunities go. So I figured that out pretty quick and realized, man, I'm in a pretty good spot and worked my butt off and lo and behold got in the heli and got to tag along for heli mitigation avalanche control um, missions in the san juans which was mind-blowing first time handling explosive as well as you know first few times in a helicopter and so that's a story in itself but then there wasn't really a full-time job opportunity especially year round for Helitrax. So I looked elsewhere and eventually I knew I had to pay my dues in the ski realm. Uh, so I was ready to work unpaid if I could scrap the money together in other ways mm-hmm. to pay rent and stuff. Uh, so then I applied for this second unpaid internship or minimally paid internship in Cresta Butte for the cat ski operation, Irwin. Irwin cat skiing just west of Crested Butte. And then that pretty much led me down this path <laughs> with uh, 11 experience and giving me these super cool opportunities in other places. And so long story short, that's kind of how I'm here now. Uh, during that time, I knew I needed to gain as much knowledge as possible both formally and informally with mentorship. So I started down the American Mountain Guide Association path, the AMGA, as a junior or senior in college. I drank my first legal beer in the gold miner's daughter at the base of Alta after the end of my first um, course, like the ski guide course at the AMGA. So I'll never forget that. It was just puking snow. I mean, classic Alta story, puking snow, pitcher of beer, you know, 10 days of being in the mountains with a bunch of like-minded people. And that was super good experience. But so then I worked down that AMGA path, which took me nine years. And now I'm a IFMGA fully certified guide, uh, which is, which is pretty rare in the U S there's only about 160 or so men and women certified to that level. So it was a huge accomplishment for me. And it's also led to some really cool opportunities since getting it. Yeah. Let's stay on this AMGA certification for a minute. Talk a little bit more about, you said multi-year process, like what are you doing? What is entailed with this certification of yours? Yeah. So the AMGA certification process is pretty rigorous. It's all skill-based practical. There's no written component at all. There's a bunch of prerequisite courses that you need to take in order to be eligible to even participate in some of these courses. So it's divided into three categories or disciplines. So you got the ski discipline, the alpine discipline, which is general mountaineering, including ice climbing. And then you got multi-pitch rock climbing. And so in each of those three disciplines, there's three course courses within those. So you have your in- entry level course. And then beyond that, the last two courses in each discipline are exam. There's an examination component to them. 
So it's pretty high pressure and there's no guarantee that if you pay the the money to take this course that you're going to pass. So there's a lot riding on it as far as sunken costs, equipment you need to buy as and time and time away from guiding uh, or whatever job you're doing in order to participate in this. So it's a mega commitment and it takes most people somewhere in the four to eight year range. For me, it took nine years and life changed pretty dramatically from being a punk college kid to being a, a dad in that time. And so, yeah, it, it, it's pretty rigorous and dangerous and yeah, people who pass that are pretty committed to the craft of mountain guiding. Hmm. All right. I need to just back up for a second here. One thing you said was that you became a fly fishing guide because that was sort of the most in your wheelhouse. I have never heard you talk about fly fishing before. So are you a passionate fly fisher? Are you still? What's going on there? Sorry, we're, <laughs> we're backing up in, in history here. Yeah, well, no, I, I just didn't know anything about guiding or any way. How do I get into this whole mystical world of guiding? And I thought, oh, what outdoor skill do I know that's you know worthy? And I grew up fly fishing just with my family and brother and dad. And, and so I thought, oh, you know, I'll get my foot in the door as a guide by fly fishing. And so, and I actually really liked it for a long time, Hmm. but I also grew tired of guiding people fly fishing because you have no control over anything except the lunch you're providing (laughs) that day Uh and just being a generally good person to hang out with really. And sometimes some days that isn't enough. Uh, People come in with these high expectations They're paying a lot of money to hire a fishing guide. And sometimes they just suck at fishing. Uh And you have no control, no matter how hard you try to teach them, do this, tie different flies on. Sometimes they're just not that good, but you're being judged Mm. primarily on how many or how big of fish they're catching that day. Um, Not always, but enough that I grew a little bit tired of that daily rigmarole and gotcha. charade and not charade, but just kind of uh, mm. that judgment. Yeah. I guess I'm being judged on how big of a fish and how many fish you catch. And yet you're the one casting. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So we're going to get a bit more into sort of the professional part of being a pro guide, but I guess I'll ask you at this point, what advice would you have for people thinking, huh, I might want to kind of get into that world myself? Like, is it any clearer today what you think a few of the steps would look like? Because I think you've done a good job of kind of explaining, like, I kind of knew I wanted to do this. I really didn't know how to go about it. Yeah. um, The advice I would give to a young 20 something, uh, because let's be honest, I mean, you got to be a fairly young to get your foot in the door because I've seen a lot of middle-aged people try to make guiding a second career and some do it uh, who are extremely motivated and fit and all that. But a lot of them just won't be getting their foot in the door with employers because they, employers, guide services want to hire someone that they can invest in and they're going to get a good return on their investment with training. Uh, So I think for the young 20-something interested in becoming a mountain guide or any guide for that matter, I would say... It's not as glamorous as the photos make it out to be all the time. 
Uh, I've guided a lot of different disciplines all over the place. And you see what, what is interesting is you see the true colors of people and some of those colors aren't that beautiful hmm. at times because they're out of their comfort zone and they're uncomfortable or maybe they're being pushed beyond anything they think they're capable of, which is also really cool, but y you got to be good with people for sure. Yeah. If you're not, don't bother. Yeah. Um, you got to have good self-awareness. You got to have, there's a lot of elements that, you can't really read in a book or teach that easily. You can learn, but you got to be very self-aware to see something, recognize your own inability or, you know, lack of development in that discipline or skill, and then be motivated to make those changes. And, and it's really intangible and it's hard to be graded on that stuff. And I think your biggest feedback is if people are going to rebook with you or not, and yeah. you put in all this time and energy and you won't know that until mm. you actually get hired and start guiding. So there's like a bunch of soft skills and, and human psychology stuff that some people have and some people don't. Even if you don't, you can still be a guide, which you may not be the best guide if yeah. you're, if your jokes are falling flat or you can't pick up on someone being super nervous or, or scared or compassionate. So, but as far as the tangible things, if you're looking to become a guide, I think the first thing is to get some sort of wilderness first responder type first aid certification. So that's an 80 hour course usually takes seven to 10 days. Nowadays after COVID there's some online component most often, which cuts the number of physical days you have to be at one of these courses, but that's huge. That's like, you cannot be hired if you don't have that minimum level of first aid training. And then beyond that, just it may seem silly and it may seem like uh, hoops to jump through, but you got to get formally trained. So you have something on that resume to provide an employer. So those would be the, the couple things I would recommend yeah. to start. Do you think then at this point in time, so somebody who has gotten their wolfer say, should they start reaching out to different guide companies and just try to get that foot in the door about like, Hey, you know, here's an op in the area that I happen to live, or I'm willing to move and relocate. Do you just start hitting up companies and saying like, I'm willing to intern, I'm willing to do anything. Like, is that kind of the best way to go? I mean, that's kind of how I went about it was just throwing myself at some of these employers and and also knowing a few people like the whole it's not what you know it's who you know that is extremely valuable in the guiding industry so if you have a an introduction or maybe at a early winter snow and avalanche conference and you want to meet some of the who's who of the community, potentially other guides or employers or patrollers or anyone like that. Like put your best foot forward. Don't look like a ragtag dirt bag and, you know, go to some of those casual events with the back of your mind thinking, oh, well, I could you know, make a good first impression with someone that has some uh, power or connections in the area that you wish to guide. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't happen super fast. And I think the best way to find a good fit is to let it happen somewhat organically. But yeah, you gotta, you gotta know someone mm. knowing someone helps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Seems to me I've now spent a decent amount of time with a number of guides. Certainly don't know all of them. But if I had to say like two qualities that kind of stand out to me when you made the 
uh, statement that, well, one way you're going to kind of know if you're actually any good at this is, is anybody rebooking you? And so right now I'm not talking about like, we're going to just assume you better know your stuff when it comes to say snow science or being able to read aspects and, you know, find good snow or, you know, understand stability in snowpack and the rest. But I really think among some of the people that I've enjoyed being out in the mountains with the most, there's kind of two things. They're just really authentic people and they're polished. Hmm. And it's like they're both, right? You can kind of be polished and that can mean like almost smarmy or something. And that's not what I mean whatsoever. It's like, authentic kind of down-to-earth people who are also clearly not dummies, right? And sometimes the conversations can start going broad. Maybe that's after the day in the mountains and it's, you know, back in the lodge or wherever, but the people who can kind of converse across a broad range do that and then instill a lot of confidence in more or less precarious positions out in the mountains. I think to me, those are some of the hallmarks of some of the people up there who I'm like, you are really good at your job and you're going to be able to do this for as long as you want to. I don't know if that resonates at yeah, all. Yeah, No, totally. I mean, what, when you first start getting into guiding, you think that to be a good guide, you have to, you know, always find the best snow or mm. always be, you know, the best climber or you got to find the fish or this and that. And the longer you do it, you realize it's not really about that. If you can provide that, that's bonus, but it's more just conducting the day. At least for me, it's conducting the day as I would want to be, as I would want my own day to go. If it was just me in the mountains with my friends, family, or just myself, and then also, uh, early on, you're you're a bit shy to shoot people straight. I feel like uh-huh. in fear of, you know, making them scared or making them mad or disappointing them is a big one. And I think the longer you, I've been doing this, the more transparent I've become. And if the conditions are bad, I'm going to tell you they're bad. Uh-huh. Or if it's dangerous, I'm going to tell you it's dangerous. And But I'll also accompany anything I say with, and this is how we're going to mitigate that, yep. or this is what we need to do. Or And some days it's, hey, I know we hiked two days into this objective and you really want to climb this peak or whatever, but the conditions just are not safe for it. And we're going to hike back uh, and try another day. So... Yeah, it, it, I think the transparency and honesty and judgment goes a long way. So, just to recap here, the ability to be honest and transparent with people when they may well be outside of their comfort zone. I was saying the ability to be like just authentic, genuine, and also sort of be polished, like able to kind of go broad. Oh, and by the way, yeah, you basically are taking responsibility for people's lives. So where we're kind of coming around on this, I guess, is this is what sort of puts the word professional in, you know, I'm a professional guide, right? And I think that's just an important thing to communicate, certainly if there are young people in our blister audience that maybe they have seen the photos and they're like, that looks sick. But like, I think what I've again, really come to appreciate is this is absolutely a profession and should be treated as such. Cody Townsend and I were talking about this recently. Like we do have like in our ski culture and our mountain bike culture and climbing culture, we still sort of celebrate like dirtbag culture for reasons that I still think are awesome, right? Like if we are really about this skiing and mountain biking and climbing, 
it's really about that. And you're willing to sleep in your car or on the ground to go pursue some of these passions. But sometimes I think there can be sort of a misstep and that we sort of look at the guiding life as being like, oh, I guess that's somebody who just always does want to live out of their car or sleep in a tent. And it's like, if you've been hearing to what we've been talking about, you know, there are accountants out there and we call them professionals. Nobody dies if they mess up, you know, on a Tuesday at their job. That's not your reality. And I think that it would be good for aspiring guides, but also anyone in the outdoor community who is going to be hiring a guide um, or employing a guide. We need to maybe take this a lot more seriously or just understand the wide range of skill sets and the risks and responsibilities that you all are dealing with every day in the field. Mm. Oh, couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's uh it's not something I try I don't, I find myself thinking about that responsibility sometimes and I try to put it out of my head. But yeah, at the end of the day, especially in some of these things that I do, like heli ski guiding or mountaineering guiding or rock climbing, it, it, it there is this heavy weight on your shoulders and if everything's going well it's super easy not super easy but it's going smoothly it doesn't feel hard you feel properly prepared for it and it should go smoothly but there are those times when the weather's coming in or you have a bad skier or some skier blew your directions and now they're in a very precarious place it it makes me sprout gray hairs and it is a pretty serious business that I think does require um, proper compensation for one and also a shift in cultural um, respect also. Mm-hmm where Europe has had this guiding culture in the Alps for hundreds of years. Mm. And the way the guides are, the standard at which guides are held to is the same standard at which doctors and lawyers and, you know, those professional quote unquote uh, jobs that hold that same responsibility, especially in the medicine fields where you do have someone's life in your hands. So, yeah, I think that, you know, guiding is a huge, broad, vague term, and it could be guiding wildflower hikes for two miles, yeah. or it could be high-end mountaineering or heli-ski guiding or you name it. Yeah. So there is that spectrum, but I think in a lot of the middle ground to higher, more advanced side of the guiding spectrum, there's a serious responsibility that guides hold sometimes we realize it and sometimes we don't until you know something happens but yeah try our best to avoid it recognize the the hazard and risk and avoid it Hmm. or mitigate it with techniques and equipment and timing yeah yeah and by the way i was kind of earlier like shelving the education part saying like, well, any truly top shelf guide ought to have their own solid education in these things. But then there's another component. It's not just your education as a guide. This has just been kind of been reminded all over the last couple of days. You guys are also educators, right? And, you know, it's still to me one of the coolest things about going out with a guide, most of the times I've been out in the mountains with a guide, it's either backcountry skiing or heli skiing, but to just go back and be in the mountains, traveling in the mountains with professionals. And sometimes it's just being reminded of stuff that it's like, right, I learned that 20 years ago, but I haven't thought about it in maybe six years. Like those reminders, I think, can be great. And then 
virtually every day I'm out with guides, I am learning something new. And so <laughs> we can just add that to the list of things we've talked about. But in terms of the services, that, you know, that education element to the public is just yet another reason, especially as we've seen like an uptick in backcountry skiing. And there's so many people who are like, well, that looks really interesting. And how do we get into that? Um, you know, often when we get people writing us at Blister asking that question, we're like, find the best guide you can in the area you're looking to go or, or locally, because you're going to learn a heck of a lot going out with them and do your Avi One course, but also just days out in the mountains with a professional is a really great part of the kind of education process. And as again, we have more people coming into the backcountry. I would love to think that we've seen an uptick as well in number of people hiring guides. Yeah, absolutely. The industry is is booming and there was this sharp dip in in guiding directly following the onset of COVID. But since June 2020, things haven't been busier, uh, have never been busier. So yeah, there's this huge demand and people are rediscovering nature and the mountains and rivers and ocean. And I think that's so nice and amazing. And I think our culture needs that more and more every day. Uh, and guides can provide that education on stewardship and how to do things properly, how to poop properly in the mm. mountains or whatever it may be. Uh, and then they're just generally are really high quality mentors, even though they are paid, they're going to be a great source of mentorship for whatever activity you're you're interested in where if you we take a, a backcountry skier maybe a advanced resort skier wants to get in the backcountry takes their level 1 avalanche education course and then they got this certificate that says ah, i took my level 1 that's not nearly enough to yeah. be safe in the mountains you got to fill that that donut up with like the the mentorship uh, side of things, or if you think of courses as bricks, mentorship is the mortar between those bricks, and it should be pretty thick before laying the next brick down hmm. of a formal course. And so, yeah, it's uh, it, we're a great resource for hmm. for that. And yeah, things have not been busier hmm. for sure. Hmm. All right, brass tax question. I wanted to ask you. I've gotten this question a lot. I've gotten this question this trip and I found myself thinking like, I don't actually know if there is like the industry standard answer to this question. So this seems to be a very good time to ask this. Tipping, tipping guides. A couple of people in our group, they were like, these last couple of days have been awesome. Like, you know, what, what should we do? Like, you know, we absolutely want to say thanks to you and to Drew and some of the other folks we've been out with. So I found myself thinking like, well, I know what I was going to do, but I don't actually know like where we are in terms of protocols or standards or anything like that. So can you help us on this question? <laughs> yeah, it's always a bit awkward both to talk about and to just the whole transaction of tipping is highly appreciated and somewhat informally required, but companies and outfitters are reluctant to post a tipping policy and guides don't talk about it, kind of like Fight Club. <laughs> and if you Google how to tip online, you probably won't find much either. Huh. I'm guessing I, I should, we should do that. I don't know what the okay. the guidelines are, but for me, if you enjoyed your trip, even if you didn't quite enjoy the trip, but it was obvious that the guide was trying, and I yeah. think that's most important. Yeah. 
uh, going back to the fishing stuff where if I worked my butt off, but you didn't catch any fish, you should still tip well. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as tipping, it varies between the activity. The amounts vary between the activity you're doing. So fishing, guiding, you're going to be looking at a much higher tipping rate than say maybe hiking guiding Hmm. traditionally. But I think a general rule of thumb is if you take 20% off the cost of whatever guided activity you're doing, you're going to deliver a really happy guide a tip. Hmm. So sometimes if it's a really extravagant trip maybe and the price tag is quite high, Oftentimes, that's accompanied by a lot of hard work by the guide on the other end. So even though it might be a shock to the system, when you make that calculation, you can't go wrong from that simple guideline. But uh, if that's too complicated, you know, throwing a hundred bucks in someone's hand for a day trip of guiding, they're going to be stoked. Mm -hmm. So I think a hundred bucks a day is is a standard minimum mm-hmm. for a good solid tip. But I don't judge too much. It I think it depends on who you are. Like if you're some some young college kid yeah. and they slap me a twenty after a level one course, that's amazing. Like that's so generous, and no one will ever give you the side eye for that. But yeah, I think a hundred bucks, if you can afford it, is a really solid tip per day mm-hmm. for your standard. And then it gets more than that if it's an overnight trip or multiple days or, you know, but that's a general outline I can provide. Okay, so you'd say, this is your shot, shoot your shot. <laughs> so we've heard a couple things. The hundred bucks a day or 20% if it was really great work or you really just appreciated all the aspects of the work that a guide was doing on a given day, let's say 20 to 25% of the, the bill for the day or for the trip. Mm -hmm. So which you would say go with the higher of those two numbers is that kind of where i I just honestly i'm trying to help people get to a bit of a like here's how i just should i I think there's a lot of people out there who do really respect the work that a guy does and they just kind of want to know and it's like we're kind of not telling people yeah so you're setting precedence here choose your words carefully whatever's higher 100 bucks or 20 percent of your trip okay i like it it's easy I think we just, now that can be the first thing people, well, I guess we need to write it, but we need to write this down first. But is that, that's a, we're getting there. We'll consider this a good, maybe first step to the kind of normalization of how people ought to think about. Yeah. And then one little side insider comment I'd say as a a customer or client would be to just quietly ask your guide if it's not obvious are your tips pooled or Uh does this go directly to you? And if you feel like you want to make that tip directly to the guide who took you out, that's, that's something you can always do. But in a lot of these operations, say in a heli ski lodge or any kind of lodge setting, especially a lot of times those tips are pooled if you were to tip 20% at the end on your bill. So if you specifically want to give X amount to the guide team, then make that known either specifically written on your bill or directly to the guide. Got it. So there you have it. Uh, I think that describes it pretty well okay i like it the irony here is you actually have a guide meeting coming up (laughs) uh i think technically in three minutes so i need to let you get going but um for now i did want to actually there's one other element i don't know how relevant this is for like how many guides this is a relevant question for but you spend a lot of time not in 
Crested Butte. You spend a lot of time away from home. And talk a little bit about sort of where you have been guiding. And I guess I'll ask, how common or uncommon is that? And um, three, I mean, talk a little bit about just the, you're raising a family, uh, (laughs) you're out here keeping some of us yokels alive. How common or uncommon is your current situation? Well, I'm I'm pretty proud. Like I think a lot of uh, there's a misconception that guiding can't be a profession that you can have a family, own a house, drive a car. And I just want to clear that up that if you work your ass off, you can. Mm. And so, but it takes a lot of hard work mm-hmm. to make it happen. And so I can proudly say I've earned all of those things on my own and it's doable. And so to make it doable, you got to always be scrapping and figuring out how to make it all work from the money side of it. And so one way, I mean, and things changed a lot after COVID. I mean, I went on unemployment for a couple months because who knew what was going to be happening mm-hmm. with guiding as we knew it. Turned out things got busier, but you know, I went on un- unemployment for a couple months. And then, yeah, you, since COVID, I've been forced to scrap around and just always be looking for good opportunities. And I'm just so grateful that my wife and kids are uh, at this point accepting of this mm. amount of travel, but I I understand and recognize that it's somewhat unsustainable to be gone twelve weeks out of the winter uh, or more. I'm going on. I left home March 18th, and it's May, whatever it is today, 15th. Yep. And I haven't, I've only seen him one week in that time. So there's definitely a lot of sacrifice and, and there's a lot of guides that are divorced and single and, you know, have various kids all over the place or, you know, lots of different stories out there. But I think going back to transparency and honesty and, and setting expectations and all that, um, that's the best you can do and hopefully make it work. I think the the guiding life that I'm striving for and I haven't reached yet is figuring out a way to either have the family travel to all these cool places yep. as they're still young. I have a three-and-a-half-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. So traveling around with the family – and allowing them to see some of these cool places and cultures or and or working two weeks on and having two weeks off Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out that schedule financially to make that a possibility maybe that's unattainable but that's where my head's at at this point yeah you're here in Iceland. Do you know? Do you have a date where you're taking off? Yeah, uh, June 1st. So a couple more weeks. Yep. And then you're off to? Um, it's undeci- undetermined yet. I, there's a, I do want to spend more time in Crested Butte at home, but uh, I'll probably find myself in Europe for at least a couple weeks this summer. Mm-hmm. Or fall, and then I'll be back up in Canada next winter with a two-week on, two-week off, or something around that schedule. Okay. Yeah. Well, hey, man, I do need to let you get to that guide (laughs) meeting, but appreciate the time. And uh, yeah, it's cool to kind of catch up with you and get your thoughts on this. And and like I said, both for young people who are curious about this, I hope in this conversation we have maybe set some expectations. I hope you have the sense that like Ian and his fellow guides, there's a number of them out there setting a very high bar. Um, And that's why it was kind of important to me to talk about the professionalism here that we're seeing. I think for people, again, hiring guides to understand like, 
oh, right, these aren't just, you know, some yokels who decided they just like to be outside. There are more responsibilities in this profession, I think I'm ready to say, than in most professions. So let's all keep that in mind. Um, And then another thing I keep thinking about for a, a long time, like our ski community and mountain bike communities, we need really good ski shops and bike shops that can service ski equipment and can service these mountain bikes. Well, we really need good guides too. So if there is that shop that just does a great job servicing all of this gear we love to use to get out, support those good ones. I'm not that interested in supporting the mediocre ones or the bad ones. Forget it. But we kind of need to think the same thing about our guide community as well. Because if that isn't a sustainable, workable profession for the best and brightest among you know, or those who would love to go into this if it were viable, then we're just shooting ourselves in kind of the collective foot, I think. So appreciate your thoughts and and frankly, even more, just really great being out in the mountains with you again. Heck yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Jonathan. This has been an awesome interview and first time I've ever done something like this Mm. and so fun skiing out. Mm out in the mountains of Iceland with you and <laughs> seeing both the really good and the really bad <laughs> snow. <laughs> well, and now see, this is the thing when you're back in Crested Butte, I know you're like trying to get family time in and see the kids and stuff, but we will, we'll, we'll maybe sneak, we'll sneak a beer in somewhere along the way, you know, when it's not too much of, too much of a bother or we'll just keep linking up here in Iceland. <laughs> no, I'm good with that. Okay. Hey, I'll let you get <laughs> to your meeting. Thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Super honored. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Ian for the conversation. I also want to say thanks to all of the other terrific guides who we've been hanging out with and getting out into the mountains with this week. It really is a top shelf crew that they've assembled here at Depler Farm. And so thanks to the guides and the pilots and the incredible staff here. I also want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from the entire Blister team, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll be talking to you again later this week over on our Off the Couch podcast, our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, and this coming Friday on our Gear 30 podcast. All right. Take care, everybody. Talk to you soon.